When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right, John, thank you very much. I am Chris Cuomo, and welcome to Primetime. The president finally admitted that the pandemic may get worse. And that wearing a mask, if you can't socially distance, wearing a mask is a must. Six months, more than 141,000 deaths, almost 4 million cases later. And as half the states in the country fall backwards, Trump is finally admitting the truth. This is at least what you need to be hearing from this president every day. It's called reality. It will probably, unfortunately, get worse before it gets better. Something I don't like saying about things, but that's the way it is. When you are not able to socially distance, wear a mask, get a mask. Uh, Whether you like the mask or not, uh, they have an impact, they'll have an effect, and we need everything we can get. We are imploring young Americans to avoid packed bars and other crowded indoor gatherings. Be safe and be smart. Look, he had to read it. But at least the people who are writing it are putting the right things on the page now. And at least he found the will to say it. And I say at least because that's what that is. This was the first virus briefing since April. That's the least amount of commitment you can have. Imagine if our president had been on message all along. How much pain could we have avoided? I know Trump wants praise for owning the obvious. I know his supporters will say, damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. Not when it comes to telling you the truth. And not when it comes to him hiding the truth for bad reason. So patting him on the back is not the bar here. You know where the bar comes, right? November. The election will be a vote on how the president handled this. That's a bar that he has to get over, and it's a bar that you will set. For right now, Is it enough that it took him months to echo the need to wear masks and whip one out of his pocket? He said, wearing one is patriotic. Is that an admission that he has been unpatriotic all along as he and many of his followers were saying, don't wear a mask, that a mask is weak, that a mask is an affront to him? Many of his followers who continue to freak out about wearing a mask all over the country. What's his message to them? It is not enough that this president wasn't an active enemy to the truth today every time he opened his mouth. He will not get a pass for once again pushing lies about testing. We are not ahead of everywhere else when it comes to using testing and tracing. And it's a big problem we have here. Now that we know the president gets what the reality is, that was a powerful admission by him today. There can be no forget masks. There can be no it will disappear. He acknowledged what is true that he has been told for months. Now our question is what? What will the president do about it? Hashtag, where is the plan? Hashtag, do your job. 
Trump said tonight and tomorrow, the professionals will tell him what is needed for testing. And the need is great. How many of you know or hear about how long it takes to get a test still, how long it takes to get results, and how many people have had a result say they're positive and then say they're negative or the the reverse or both? When will this president give us a plan to help schools and communities across the country? in places that he won, families he swore to that he would end the carnage. Well, the carnage is in full effect, and this president made it worse. How will he make it better? There is a long war ahead, and if every state has to go it alone in figuring out how to plan and pay for school openings, when they can barely count cases, The carnage will continue. We learned just today the actual number of coronavirus infections in this country. You ready for this? It may be 10 times higher than what's been reported according to the CDC. My first guest calls the data inconsistent, incomplete, and inaccessible. Why? Most states fail to report all the data. You have to start asking. Is this intentional in any of these cases? And what do we do about it? Joining us now, former CDC director in the Obama administration, Dr. Tom Frieden. Good to have you back on primetime. Great to be with you, Chris. Let's deal with the conceptual pushback. What do you mean the, the data is wrong? The data is the data. The states uh, put it out. It's always this way, Tom. What we did was have experienced health researchers look in detail at all 50 states plus D.C. and Puerto Rico. And what we found was if you just define the essential facts that you'd like to have, less than half of them are on the state dashboards and no state is alike. And this is not the state's fault. They're working hard. Some of the data is hard to come by. Fundamentally, we don't have a clear strategy, vision, guidelines, accountability. And so we don't have information on early warnings. We don't have information on your risk in your community. We don't have information from a third of states on where the outbreaks are and from many states on whether they're controlling the outbreaks. And we don't have useful information on testing and tracing. You mentioned testing. You know, one of the most misleading numbers in all of this is the number of tests performed per day. 200,000, 500,000, 700,000. But how many of those tests come back in time to be useful? Mm. How many of them are done that result in someone getting isolated or contacts being worn so they can protect their family? Those are the real numbers. And on those indicators, really, we put it this way, the information is abysmal. We don't see it on a single state dashboard. And that's because they haven't been told to put it there and supported to do the work to get it there and get the number looking good. The key dynamic here is schools. Uh, It can't be if or if not, it's about when and how, because you can't get people back to work. We got to get our kids back into a normal situation. So timing is important and timing is going to be a coefficient of the planning. How important is it that the federal government lead the way in offering states state by state help? Because they've been asking. We know that uh, for the money, the planning and the purpose in each of these different communities. How important is a plan on the federal level? It's really crucial. What we're seeing here is people saying, 
can you open the schools? That's not the question. The question is, can you open them and keep them open? That's only going to happen if you can control the disease in the state, in the community. Uh, here in New York, the governor is doing exactly the right thing. He's focusing on the percent positive and saying, if you're above 5%, going to be impossible to open. And that's probably absolutely correct. Under 5%, maybe you can open if you do all of these things right. That's the kind of approach we need in every state around the country, because that's the only way. I, I think it's very important that we work hard to get our kids back to school, but it's not going to be like before. We're going to have to shield the most vulnerable. We're going to have to reorganize teaching in many ways. For high school kids, we may have to be a combination of online and offline potting or cohorting kids so that if there is a case, we don't have to shut the whole school again. But in parts of the country where the virus is spreading ex explosively, like much of the South, unless they get it in control, the kids are not going to be able to go to school and stay in school. That's why it's up to all of us. Wear a mask, wash your hands, watch your distance. And yes, stay out of crowded bars, but why are the bars open? Right. So all of those are important points. But at the end of the day, this is going to take money. It's going to take human resources and it's going to take intellectual resources. What works, what doesn't and in what applications. That's where the federal government is supposed to come in. Dr. Tom Frieden, thank you for being clear about the path forward. Appreciate it. All right. So what do we know? You just heard uh, the doctor say in the South, you have the biggest problems uh, right now. COVID cases exploding in Florida. Its governor says today his state is on the right course. One of the teachers suing DeSantis, the governor there, over his plan to reopen schools will counter that. She personally suffered with the virus and made it through. She has a warning about how we get kids back to school next. Imagine you spend 21 days in a ventilator after contracting COVID-19 and after fighting for your life, you're told at the height of a pandemic in your state that you have to go back and do your job. And that job is in a place that's going to be high risk. There's no real plan on how to limit the risk and no real integrity from your bosses about being honest about the risk. That is the proposition, according to the teacher you're about to meet, Stephanie Miller. That's her that you watch there. Given Florida's education commissioner's order to open school buildings five days a week in August with no real plan about how to make it safe enough. So the Sunshine State's largest teachers union is suing the state of Florida and Miller is a plaintiff in that lawsuit. She's speaking out like many of her fellow Florida educators have. And she joins us now. How are you feeling? I'm doing good. Thank you. It's been a long road, but I'm getting there. How are you? I'm better than I deserve. Are you ready to work? Are you physically up to it? Well, I've been working hard. When I came off the ventilator, I could only lift my head. Oh, no, move my head. I couldn't even lift it. But um, through physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy, I had to relearn how to walk and talk. My vocal cords were damaged, so I have to get therapy for that. Am I ready to work? Yes and no. I've made a lot of progress. I can work, walk on my own now, but not um, 
light on my feet, shall I say. I hear you. The last thing you want is to put yourself in a position of jeopardy, especially in your particular condition. But you see it as part of a larger problem. Why don't you believe that your state uh, is ready to go back to school? Well, our numbers are through the roof right now. Um, we're not socially distancing the way we should be, and it's spreading like crazy. And it's almost like a science experiment. Pack the school full of kids and teachers and personnel and see how it goes, uh, especially when they're not taking precautions. We don't have the protective gear. We don't have enough sanitation in the school be before COVID. We caught every flu there was and bug. Now, how are we going to protect ourselves and the students and their families? There's no real solid plan in place. In fact, I haven't heard anything. Other than the need uh, to open, which everybody agrees on. You know, and exactly. I, I'm sure you understand that we want to get the schools open. The question is how and how we keep them open. So the pushback will be this, Stephanie. All right. So maybe you shouldn't work because you're fragile. Uh, and your mom had it uh, and your fiance had it. So, all right, your family's a special case. You can apply and maybe get some kind of dispensation. But teachers in general will be fine. And if the kids get it, uh, they'll get over it. And they're largely asymptomatic. So we're going to be OK. Not everybody's a Stephanie. Let's go back to work. You know, I have no pre-existing health conditions for me to have gone hit as hard as I did. It's kind of a roll of the dice. You might get hit hard. You might not. You don't know what you're going to get until you get it. And then once you've got it, there's no going back. What do you want your kids uh, from your classes to know about their teacher and how you feel and what you want for them? I'm doing good. As I tell them to try their best and work their hardest, that's what I'm doing. Every day I get up with a good attitude and I do whatever my therapist tells me to do. And I practice and I have a lot of people that help me keep my chin up when I get discouraged, just like I do for them. And we're all into this together. We as teachers just want to protect our children and their families and our families. What we're doing you, what we've always what done, is caring about the greater good of all. What would you say to Governor DeSantis? This is not worth taking a risk on. This is humans' lives. We don't just throw us in there with no solid plan. It has to be well thought out with a lot of, a lot of protection in place. What's going to happen when a teacher or student gets sick? What happens then? The whole class has to isolate. Who takes over the class? We have a sub shortage as it is. Where are we going to get the subs to cover if a teacher gets sick or if a child gets sick? And what happens if it happens in the middle of the day that someone starts feeling good? What is the exact protocol that we would be handling? Because before COVID, parents sent kids in sick and you hope that they would pick them up. Not always did they do so. 
So these are real questions. And you would think that the state would have answers if they're going to send people back to school for the kids, their families and the teachers and their families. Uh, and we will be staying yeah. on the story to see what Florida does about it, not just because of the lawsuit, but because of the reality in that state reflecting what's happening all over the country. I want to end on one good note, though, so that people know things can get better if you get a little bit of luck and a lot of love. Uh, this is video of you being discharged from uh, the hospital. And I know it was a big cause for celebration uh, from the team that took care of you. You were in really bad shape. People were worried. Uh, but look at you today. You're back on the right track. And we all wish you very well. And I look forward to staying in touch right. and to hear about how strong the recovery can be. And hopefully uh, you're doing it and finding a way to teach when it is right and the way that it is right. Stephanie Miller, thank you. Thank you. All right. Look, that's the situation in Florida. We've had all kinds of angles on it and we'll stay on it because it's a metaphor for what you're going to see all over the country. States can't just do it. They have to figure out how to do it. And governors have been begging the president for federal help with their covid fights, whether it was PPE, whether it's testing, tracing money, uh, helping augment their state budget lapses and now figuring out how do we do this school thing the right way and can you help us pay? Now, they say they've been largely ignored. And yet the president sends in unwanted federal forces to Oregon to control the inequality protests. Our next guest had some big concerns about it as a Navy veteran, and it got him beaten with a baton and pepper sprayed. He wants you to hear his story next. Navy veteran Chris David went to the protests in Portland, Oregon, hoping to speak to federal agents after reports that they were arresting people without explanation. Video shows U.S. Marshals beating and pepper spraying David, whom they labeled a subject who was not complying with lawful commands. Chris David joins us now uh, to respond. Chris, welcome and first, thank you for your service. And thank you for having me on your show. It's an honor, Chris. I know, I don't know. The, the, the privilege is ours. Uh, this is what they said. The subject on the video presented a threat to the deputy U.S. Marshals by continuing to approach them and failing to comply with lawful commands to withdraw as they proceeded to reenter the courthouse. Less than lethal force was deployed only until the individual retreated. The deputies believed that the force used was necessary to protect themselves and others from physical harm. Your response? Well, uh, does their training with batons include hitting me in the back as I'm walking away or hitting me in the hand and breaking my hand? Because as far as I know, I don't think those are standard tactics with a baton. When you approached them, were you trying to get into an altercation? Were you trying to start a fight? No, absolutely not. In fact, uh, when they came rushing out of the courthouse, they ran into the intersection and plowed into a bunch of protesters and knocked them down. So what I did is I walked out of the park and into the street and I stopped in the street a few feet from the curb and I stood there. And after they had sort of dealt with the folks in the intersection, it seems they started to surround me. And I was standing there trying to have a discussion with them about whether they were honoring their oath to the Constitution. At that point, one of the gentlemen came up and leveled his semi-automatic weapon at my chest. And then another individual plowed into me and knocked me back a couple feet. And at that point, all I did was get ready for the beating. I relaxed my body. I stopped talking. And then they proceeded to beat me and pepper spray me until I would leave. 
why did you uh, decide to let that happen? You were obviously a very big dude, by the way, but um, did you allow them to hit you and then give them the salute walking away to make a scene, or did you feel you had no other choice? Um, well, there was a gentleman there with a semi-automatic weapon, so I felt the best plan at that point was to just not move at all. And I knew the beating was coming. Why did you know? I could sense it. They were out of control. They had no tactical plan with what they were doing. They just came out to fight. That's pretty much it. Did they have any reason to believe that you or any of the other people were trying to make a move on the uh, building? Uh, well, I was still standing in the street while everybody else had retreated, and I stood there until they surrounded me so I could have a discussion with them. What's your take on why they were there and what it means about the situation in general? Um, they're trying to precipitate violence, protests, and chaos in order to achieve, I think, a certain type of optics that appeals to a segment of our population. Do you think they're necessary there to protect the building? Absolutely not. In what? fact, they're inflaming the situation. Explain. Well, um, when they arrived, I think the protests were starting to sort of taper off a little bit. And when they started showing up, they started with the aggressive tactics. And the more aggressive tactics they used, the larger the protest grew. And when I was there that night, there were maybe four or 500 people. I believe last night there may have been 4,000 people. So they're doing the same thing over and over again. And they're not achieving the goal that they say they're trying to achieve, which is to end the protests or end the violence. They're making it worse. And so I think the generous interpretation here about Chad Wolf is he either doesn't have a plan for what he's trying to achieve, or I think the less generous interpretation is this is intentional. You know, people are looking at the video of you and there are a lot of people giving you a lot of praise for how tough you are. And, you know, look how, oh boy, look, look how you withstood that. I got to be honest, breaks my heart. Um, I know you went down there um, because you know, it's your right and that you serve this country and you care about the stewardship of the same. And it breaks my heart, Chris, that you had to go through something like that. And I, I just want you to know that. I know a lot of people, you know, you're gonna be become part of the political maelstrom like everything else, but uh, even the yeah. people who are celebrating you for how tough you were, I, I'm sorry that you had to do that. It really does break my heart. And I thank you for your service and I appreciate you for explaining the situation. Chris, could I make one other point? Just one last point. Of course. I would like people to stop focusing on me, and I'd like to, them to start focusing back on the original reason why these protests started, which was the murder of George Floyd. The Black Lives Matters movement has been completely eclipsed by this little war that um, the administration has initiated in the streets of Portland. I think we need to get back to the real reason why we're protesting, which is Black Lives Matter. You are absolutely right and we will keep it in focus on this show best we can for as long as we must. And I wish you well. I know that you have to have reconstructive surgery on your ring finger. I hope it goes well. Stay in touch with us. Uh, let us know uh, how you are. And thank you for taking this opportunity tonight. Thank you, sir. It was an honor. The honor is mine. Thank you for your service to the country. <sighs> you believe this is going on? that we have a veteran who goes down there and gets into a situation like that. And if you're going to say, oh, well, he didn't comply, you watch the video. That's the way we're treating one another. 
Why is the Trump administration doing this? Is this the only way to do this? Is this really a plan for them to show strength and foment what's happening in the street and distract from the Black Lives Matter movement, as Chris David just suggested? Let's get some answers, okay? Because look, to me, if they want to be involved in state matters, that's great. Why not the pandemic? We have the number two guy at DHS taking the opportunity to explain the situation. We will speak to Mr. Cuccinelli next. All right, you just heard from the Navy veteran Chris David about what he experienced on the streets of Portland and his questions about why those federal authorities are there. Let's bring in acting Deputy DHS Secretary Ken Cuccinelli. Good to see you. I hope the family is well. Chris, thank you. Good to see you. All right. What is your response uh, to Chris David? He says these feds don't have to be there. They're there to make a point, which is that might makes right. And they're looking for fights and they're fomenting the situation and creating more strife in the streets. Your response. Well, I I appreciate that opinion. I I don't agree with it. Um, Certainly, uh, the Federal Protective Service, a little known agency within the Department of Homeland Security, has been protecting these federal buildings for decades, literally the Hatfield Courthouse since it was opened in 1997. And uh, the weekend of of July 4th, we had intelligence suggesting there was going to be heightened targeting of these facilities, which turned out to be correct. And we advanced other officers there to support FPS in their mission. And they were cross-designated to do that. They're operating under legal federal authority, protecting federal facilities and the people uh, at those facilities as best they can. And they've been there for about two weeks. Uh, You've seen the violence every night from Portland, but it was there every single night. They've had violence for 35 or 40 nights before we had expanded our presence there. So the idea that somehow the federal government uh, caused this, which Mayor Wheeler there has occasionally asserted, is, is just belied by the facts. Well, you We're can't there make the argument. there's more violence directed at facilities we have to protect. No, I'm with you. Uh, the, the law is pretty clear. You get the building and what they call in the law, uh, you know, that we understand. But for everybody else, they'll use the word, the phrase, appurtenant there too that you're there to defend the building and anything close and related (laughs) to the building. Fine. That's the law. Um, Now, there is a political question I'm not going to burden you with, which is these states are asking for a lot of help and this president uh, isn't giving it to them. And here he's taking it on his own to provide federal help. That's not your bailiwick. You don't decide what's done for pandemics. But the audience should be aware. The mayor can't say you started the fire there. It's not fair. The mayor can argue, as Chris David is, that you're making it worse by being there. Uh, is that the strategy? And I know that's a terrible suggestion, except, why do I ask? Oh, no. The DHS. Oh, my gosh, no. But here's why I yeah. asked, though, Ken. I, or I would never well, assume ahead. that. Yeah, go ahead. I, I've worked with DHS a lot, as you know. I have a lot of respect for what the men and women do there. The DHS secretary says, instead of addressing violent criminals in their communities, local and state leaders are instead focusing on placing blame on law enforcement and requesting fewer officers in their community. Their failed response has emboldened the violent mob as it escalates violence day after day. That does not sound like a man who's following the law to protect the building. It sounds like a man who's taking a political position on a state of play in a city. Well, no, we have a situation, and, and it's a repeat in Portland. I mean, two years ago, the same Mayor Wheeler publicly announced the withdrawal of police protection 
from an ICE facility that was under siege there. And so what happened? The siege exploded mm -hmm. and literally people invading the facility and so forth. So this is a repeat performance as it relates to intentional non-cooperation by local political authorities. I don't want to lay it on the police there. They have a tough job there, sure. Portland police uh, officers. But, but th this is a pattern uh, for this political leadership. And we, w I, this isn't so much a complaint. We have to protect ourselves, meaning the facilities we're responsible for and our mm -hmm. officers. Um, in, in most of America, it's a partnership with the local authorities. And we desire partnership. We accommodate Wolf doesn't their sound like he desires a partnership. Wolf didn't say anything you've oh, just no, said. Oh, no, we which, desire it. Well, that's not what he's saying here. He's basically taking a shot at them about how they're policing their city um, and not saying any of the things you just said, and I have no problem still with what you're doing as long as you're following the law. But the anecdotes and what we saw with Chris David is he wasn't making a move on the courthouse. And when you rush out into the street and make arrests that have nothing to do with the courthouse, some four, what is it, 43 people now? Now you're doing something else. You're policing a community. And that is not your jurisdiction, nor your place, nor have you been requested to do so. Are those requests wrong. So all of the arrests that we have been involved in, which is somewhere over 20, I don't know the exact number, um, have been related to uh, the damage to the federal property or attacking law enforcement officers protecting that federal property, which are felonies, of course, or the, the attack on officers is. They're all related to that basic that base mission. We are not patrolling this city. We are not taking on pol uh, Portland Police Bureau responsibilities, and well, we are not but what leaping out David? into crowds and Chris grabbing Chris David goes people. up there, asks them about their constitutional duty. Now, you can say that's a little bit of a provocative thing to be talking about in the middle of a protest, but he wasn't making a move on the building, and they made a move on him. You watched it. You the just got lucky that he's so big. If that guy was like your size or my size, he would have been knocked down on the ground and beaten badly. Uh, he sh you know, he's disadvantaged by size, that man. Uh, what is that about? So uh, the, there are four agencies there. Right. There are the U.S. Marshals, which is who you saw interacting yes. with Chris David. That's not DHS. And then there are three DHS. That's DOJ. Uh, right. There are three DHS entities. And so I can get every ounce of detail out of DHS officers. Right. I don't have the ability to do that with the marshals. They're not in my chain of command. So but that's a little too convenient. Isn't to it, Ken? You, you still got them. eyes. You got good well, eyes. You got not, two good eyes and that good looking head. But I'm it saying what they just did me. there wasn't about so. the building. Okay. And your guys at CBP were brought in to back up those marshals. The marshals are supposed to defend the courthouse. CBP is in there. Seems like a lot of force. But actually, to we're protect backing the up. We're backing up we're backing up FPS. Our, the CBP and the ICE agents who are there and officers are cross-designated with Federal Protective Service. That's who we're backing up in this mission. The marshals obviously have responsibilities with respect to the courthouse. Yes. They don't have any responsibilities directly for the other federal buildings or property there that we do. So we have, we have more to cover, and we have to interact with them. Um, you know, they're they're willing to be partners. That doesn't mean we control their activities. They're also willing um, we, to we're beat willing the piss out of a with, guy in the middle well, of the street let me finish the, who wasn't me, threatening the building. Go ahead. Let me. 
Yes, yeah, so we're also willing to partner with the Portland Police Bureau, and the, but the mayor is the commissioner of that police force, if right. that's the proper title, I think it is, um, and he refuses that cooperation. And, and, and a lot of that cooperation can be designed and is designed to de-escalate, to identify ways to de-escalate and to de-conflict responsibilities. We're not taking over their responsibilities. It's not what the president says. we're there, and we're not doing it. It's not what the president says. And, and that's not what we're doing. It's not what the president says. Uh, well, we're, we're, acting, we're acting, first of all, at the president's insistence I to believe protect... That this area of the community, let me finish, but it's only within the boundaries of our federal jurisdiction. That doesn't cover all of Portland. But he's not talking about buildings. these areas. He's not talking about buildings. He's saying, I don't like but what's in happening place, in these each, cities that are run by Democrats. That's true. And I'm going to send more of my guys around to quell these situations. That is not your job. That is posse comitatus. And the, Even though you're not the military, extent, it is de facto. Yeah, that's a... That, that is a military. I know, uh, but you know what I'm saying. Legal term, this is, but, but this isn't a court case. I know it's, what you're talking you're about. You're using federal and, authorities and in municipal you, situations. What right. I'm telling you, that that's right. You are equating um, his uh, d specific words to everything we're doing, and that yes. is simply not the case. But Chris. he's the president. And we're we're staying within. Okay, but we're staying within the boundaries of that federal legal authority. And we're part of the executive branch. We right. work for the but president. But do you think the president should are, be sending your guys to every boundary. city? Do you think the president should be sending your guys to every city where he doesn't like the situation on the streets? Chris, there are a lot of cities he doesn't like the I know. situation on he the streets. He said he's thinking he of Chicago. Us, and he hasn't sent us to every city. But he said he's so thinking about it. The, Do you think that's yes, a good well, thought? Yes, well, if you watch the superintendent who gave one of the best press conferences on one of these situations that I have ever seen, Superintendent Brown in Chicago, um, he was speaking in terms of cooperation with the federal government. He wants our help to try to bring peace to that community. Of course. And when we come in with of that course. sort it's of one of the biggest problems for the president with urban centers. It's he's easy to lead. say, no, 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 listen, listen. I have no problem with the federal government stepping up to help cities that are overwhelmed by their burden. But you should be asked. And it should be help that is supposed to go towards a common goal. The question is, what is the common goal here? You're beating up Navy vets? And who aren't even approaching a building and you're making so, protests more angry? So there's two types of situations. There's the one you describe, which is the ideal. And, and which, by the way, is the overwhelming majority of the way the presence of the Department of Homeland Security officers um, plays out in communities across America. Yep. It's with some level of partnership. Pre-Trump. And, yeah. and that's the overwhelming portion. And, and the, the other way is when we act on our own mm -hmm. under federal authority to fulfill federal legal obligations and that's it so you don't have the partnership element does it work you. as well no it doesn't work, doesn't as, work well. as well when but the president sets a, it up we're this still way. accomplishing i'm afraid our he's going to make your good we're men still and women pursuing and you, a federal mission i know but that's not what he's saying and that's not what wolf is echoing and i'm afraid that the good men and women of the dhs who i've worked with very closely and you too ken are going to be painted and used as thugs by the president to show might makes right in cities where there are protests where he doesn't like, especially where it's about Black Lives Matter. Are you worried about that at all? Well, first of all, 
First of all, we, and, and you, if you heard the secretary today in his press conference, he said, and we've said repeatedly over and over and over, we are determined to protect peaceful protesters. Monday night, last night, there were peaceful protests outside the courthouse in Portland. There right. were about 75 to 100 people there conducting a peaceful protest to about 11 p.m. Right. They then left, and a few minutes later, a thousand people showed up, surrounded the courthouse, and started attacking it. The question Those are is, two would totally they have been different there, things. There, we protect the would first they have been one there if and a different environment, the second. A different atmosphere had been established. But I appreciate you making the arguments. You're always welcome here to do so. And I wish you and the family well, Ken Cuccinelli. Chris, it's good to be with you. Take care. Thanks, Chris. You too. All right. Not to rush, Ken, but I got a great thing for you here. All right. You know how we've been talking about that national resolve, how we come together in a time of need? Rosie the Riveter. Remember that? How women and other citizens, men and women, came forward to build bombers in World War II. Do you remember? At age 94, an original Rosie the Riveter is about to rivet all of us with her new mission to help the U.S. bomb the crap out of COVID. We can do it, she says. Look at that face. How could we not spend time with her tonight right after the break? Tonight's American started serving our country before most of us were born, and she still is. 94-year-old May Cryer is an original Rosie the Riveter. You know the iconic poster of the campaign drew millions of women, the so-called Rosies, stepping up to take the place of men in the workforce during World War II. Now, Cryer is tying that famous polka dot red and white bandana thing into something new rosy face masks to fight our new war against coronavirus. May Cryer joins us now. What an honor and a privilege to have you on primetime. Thank you, Chris. So what made you decide that it was time to pull out the polka dot bandana once again to help the country? I've always made the polka dot uh, bandanas Wherever we travel, we go to Washington and places, and whenever we do, they love the, the bandanas. And uh, I was making a lot of them when this virus started, and I just switched over from bandanas to face masks, and it just snowballed. I said, it's amazing. I made 300 by myself and sent them out to my friends and just people, that, that my neighbors, my families, what have you. But now, with it's been on the news, we've got over 1,000 requests. So now I've got a, you know, reach out to a lot of friends have offered to help me. So we'll get there. We can do it. Where are you getting all the material from? Where are you getting the energy? Um, well, the energy I have, I'm very fortunate. I was gifted with good energy, good health. But now people are starting, at first I started with the material. People were starting to send me material and elastic and everything that I need from all over the country is absolutely amazing. I'm just stunned. When I was on Facebook, uh, and I said, I just mentioned that I ran out of elastic and I wouldn't go to a store now to get any. And the uh, first thing I did, I got a whole package of thread, everything that I needed from Delaware. And that started it. It just seemed like everywhere people wanted to help me. And it's absolutely amazing. Every day I get material, uh, elastic or thread, everything I need. And American people are wonderful, but 99% of our people are just great. When you need something or need them, they're there for you. 
We're getting drowned out by the 1% right now, Rosie. What do you say to people? You've lived through hard times in this country. You've watched this country do what had to be done to get through hard times. What do you want people to remember now? Well, you know, we went through the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. I came from the Middle West. And it was really difficult times. And, you know, when we uh, the World World War II was declared, we just all banded together, men, women, and children. And we did what had to be done. I don't understand why people can't band together now. It, it just seems to me we wore bandanas and we were uh, uh, we carried rivet guns. The girls in the shipyards had to wear the heavy welding things and they carried torches. We did that for days for and years. And I think that uh, wearing a mask seems simple to me after going through that. It absolutely does. Uh, and I hope people hear you and live by your example. May, I got to tell you, I've been looking forward to this all day long. Thank you for making my night and thank you for showing people what's right with this country then and now. God bless you and the family. And I'd love to see you and your brother on the um, television fighting with each other. Mother liked you best. You know, you know who's her favorite, May. You can just imagine. But I, I will definitely get one of your masks for him. Anything to cover his face is a good idea. May Cryer, oh, doing great. God bless and be well. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break. CNN Tonight with Don Lemon comes in right now. Rosie the Riveter, one of the original ones, my brother. She says, I just changed my sewing machine, um, you know, for the rivet gun for the sewing machine, and now I'm doing the same job. I'm helping my country. <laughs> Good for Rosie the Riveter. But those are, those are uh, the people who are keeping this country going. That's right. And keeping our spirits up. Yes. Speaking of, how are your spirits? My head and my heart are in a good place. I'm doing better than I deserve. Yeah, I'm not going to tell everybody he tried to run me over the other day, but that's okay. That is not true. I wasn't paying attention, and I look up. Boy, you got some nerve. Right. <laughs> if I told the truth of that situation, <laughs> it is the impression of you that would change. But lucky one of us has integrity, and the other is you. So listen, I've watched your, um, your interview with Ken Cuccinelli. Yep. Um, it's interesting what's happening, because you know the, the states' rights and all that. And I've been watching and paying attention a lot. You know, I did a, the, the special we did an, an mm-hmm. over an hour on crime in mm-hmm. the cities around the country. Um, and we should probably do more. But it's interesting that I, people are, I'm glad that people are starting to pay attention to crime, especially in cities like Chicago. Mm-hmm. But it is sad that they're doing it in a year where they can use it as a political cudgel to hurt someone and try to help someone else. Because crime in, in those cities, listen, there are, there are spikes in crime. And sure. there's real work that needs to be done, right? Things need to be fixed. But there, I lived in Chicago for a while. Every night when I lived in Chicago, there was a crime story, a shooting story. I've been doing stories at this network about crime for so long. I'm glad people are paying attention to it. But it has been an issue for a long time. And you know what one of the biggest issues is? The, availabil- the availability of guns. And oh, you won't sure. hear that from some people. Sure, especially in Chicago, because in Illinois, it doesn't matter what the law is uh, specific to Chicago or the state of Illinois, because the surrounding states have different laws. You got it. So, and look, New Indiana, York, every state is dealt, Wisconsin, with, dealt right. with that. Opportunity, you know, demand and supply is always going to rule. Uh, and you can't have change some places and expect it every place. But the issue that we're playing with here is the president has made it very plain, and it was echoed uh, by the DHS chief. 
they're talking politics. They're saying we don't like what's happening in the cities, not to the federal buildings. They're saying we don't like these cities that are run by Democrats and all these people on the street. We'll show them who's boss. Mm -hmm. And they're using these federal troops. Uh, now, look, troops is the wrong word. These are federal patrol agents and other officials that they're using. Troops means military. But it winds up looking the same way, Don, that they're bringing in federal th forces to make a show of force. That veteran that they beat up or tried didn't have anything to do with going after a federal building. Right. Yeah, you're right. To make a show of just a show, just a um, might makes right. But the machine is kicking in on one side, the media machine. And then you have the political machine kicking in on the other side, and the two have come together, and that's why, you're, that's why this is happening. People at home should know that. It is, but in this country, it will always be a fair fight. Yeah. You don't get to dictate the narrative here because you're in power. Yeah. The people are in power here. The media mm -hmm. works for them. We were, as they said in the Supreme Court during the Pentagon Papers, we work for the governed, not the governors. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad you're back. I missed you last night, um, but not this weekend because, again, you tried to run over me. Thank you very much, sir. You I, and we'll the truth have no relationship. <laughs> I love you. Have I'm a not night. the only one right now in this country, and I'm going to talk about it right <laughs> you're now. You're better than most. You're better than most. I Thank love you, Don Lemon. I love you more. I'll talk to you later. We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.